Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 2. Read Hebrews chapter 2. We read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 6, which reveals Christ as the mediator. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak? But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. In connection with this passage and many others, some of which we'll make reference to, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 6, question and answers 16 through 19. 
found in the back of our Psalters on page 5. Lord's Day 6, question 16. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. And one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Why must he in one person be also very God? that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Who then is that mediator who is in one person both very God and a real righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Whence knowest thou this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, and afterwards published by the patriarchs and prophets, and represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and lastly has fulfilled it by his only begotten Son. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this Lord's Day is closely related to Lord's Day 5. He uses even some of the same arguments that Lord's Day 5 did. While Lord's Day 5 is focused on the impossibility of salvation by man or any other creature, Lord's Day 6 now emphasizes a more positive approach and sets forth Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. The Catechism remembers in the section on deliverance, and it's bringing us to see the wonder of our deliverance in Jesus Christ. But once again, from our perspective, we would say the Catechism is very slow in coming to that deliverance. That can be appreciated, especially in light of the many controversies that were swirling during the time of the Catechism's writing. The early church had faced tremendous controversies over the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the fathers knew it necessary carefully to teach who Jesus was in order to emphasize that he is the only Savior. Some taught that Jesus had a human nature but wasn't completely divine. Other taught that he was a man but as a man, he was a mix of human and divine. So that there were many different heresies that came up through the church, all of which affected this fundamental truth. Is salvation of God alone or not? If one makes Jesus so that he's not fully God, well then salvation now is by Jesus who's a man, and salvation then is by man. And so the issue was, is he a complete Savior or not? Is salvation in Christ alone or not? Most every heresy denied that Jesus was a complete Savior. Catechism emphasizes that Jesus is the complete both God and man, having two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, united in the one person, the divine person of the Son of God. 
And that truth must be impressed upon us as believers so that we understand salvation is all of God. There's no possibility of salvation in any part by men. If we deny what the catechism sets forth here, there's no comfort. There's no comfort to be found in clinging somehow to myself or to other men or what they've accomplished on my behalf. There's no salvation to be found apart from Jesus Christ. And so a close relationship here is established between true doctrine and the comfort of the believer. Knowing Christ in all of his fullness and confessing him as the only Savior is my comfort, my peace, and my joy as a believer. The truth of God's word must be maintained over against all false doctrine and false teaching. Now the main point of this Lord's Day is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God sending his son as God to come into human flesh and to be born among us. God in that way reveals the way of escape. We saw our misery. We saw our sinfulness. How is it that we can be delivered? This is the only way. And as we stand before the wonder of it, it's impressed upon us. This is God's work. How could a man be born who was sinless? How could God come into human flesh? The wonder of the incarnation and the wonder of Jesus Christ sets before us the truth that Jehovah God, He alone, is able to save and deliver fallen man. Now the gospel of that salvation is what is revealed here. The fact that God has given us to know salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Now the gospel is not to be equated with the Bible. The gospel exists previous to the Bible being written. And the gospel is going to continue after we die and our Bibles are left behind. The gospel is the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. The message of which is found in the scriptures, the message of which comes to us Sunday after Sunday by God's grace. And that gospel will endure to all eternity as the hope of God's people, as their only comfort. Salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ alone. And so we look this morning at the necessity of the, ne of the incarnation noting the requirement that God sets before us, noting who that mediator is, and finally the revelation. How is it that we are able to know him as he's revealed to us through the word? The catechism says the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin. We saw last week that no man, no creature, is able to satisfy the demand of Jehovah God. God drives us to the message of the gospel, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the wonder that we need to hear. The cross is the gospel that God brought to Adam and Eve after they sinned in paradise. Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit. What was the only comfort? What was their only hope? The gospel. The seed of the woman. And the fact of that seed of the woman coming and dying in their place as the covering for their sin. And God gave them pictures. 
He gave them the picture of the animal that was slain, the picture of the skins with which they were clothed. God gave them the sacrifices, all of which pointed to that wonder of the gospel. The cross was the gospel that was brought to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and to all the prophets. In the Old Testament, the ceremonies, the sacrifices, all pointed to Christ as the revelation of the grace of God. The Scriptures testify that Jesus Christ alone is the Deliverer and the Savior. Now what does the cross reveal? The cross reveals to you and to me a man who preached, who walked among us on this earth, who was accused of things that he did not do, persecuted, who finally was hung on a cross and who died and then rose again. He was a righteous man, sinless, holy, having done nothing wrong in the whole of his life. He was a man who had a good reputation. He was not polluted by a reputation of sin as the rest of mankind are. He was upright. He was righteous. Beloved, the cross reveals one who was divine, who bore the wrath and the punishment of God and survived it. Something that no mere man could ever do. It was only after he suffered the horrors of hell that he cried out, it is finished. He lived through the punishment that God inflicted upon him for the sins of all those whom he represented. He wasn't crushed by the weight of that suffering and the terror of that sin. He sustained it before God so that he might earn for us righteousness and life. Now, it was necessary that Jesus be a real righteous man as well as very God. That involved a miracle, a wonder from God. And again, that impresses upon us this truth. Salvation is all of God. God alone was able to work this wonder. And he did through the marvel of the incarnation. Now, it's important, beloved that we are able to witness to this wonder. We must be a witness of our salvation. And as we live in the midst of this world, being a witness is hard. Because it's not easy for us to talk about spiritual things by nature. We're not inclined to do so. What do we say? God sets before us here the praise, the adoration, message that we are to proclaim. And the wonder of that message has to do with the fact of who we are and what God has done for us. Why are we here on earth? Who are we? Where do we come from? What purpose do we have as we live in the midst of this world? Why is there so much sorrow? Why is there so many struggles in this life? Is there any way out of the struggles, the trials of this life? Those are questions that people have. And we interact with people that have those questions. And they struggle with those questions. 
we need to encourage conversations about those questions. Especially with regard to those who are not living in a godly and a Christian manner. Events are going to come up in their lives. They're going to wonder. They're going to question. Why are we here on earth? What is our purpose in living? How can we escape the trouble, the struggles, the difficulties, the pressures of this life? We stress to them, there's no way out of yourself. You cannot overcome the struggles and the challenges that you face. You can't throw enough money. You can't perform what's necessary to overcome. There's only one way of escape. And that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the comfort. That's the peace. That's the message, beloved, that God gives to us. And that's the message with which we go forth in the midst of this world. And by God's grace, we testify concerning that wonder. As God gives us opportunity, we talk about our connection with Adam. We talk about what happened as a result of that connection to Adam and how that affects the whole human race. We talk about the fact that original sin, original guilt now have been passed on to the whole human race. We talk about the true nature of our misery. It's not just cancer and old age and the struggles of life. It's sin and the reality of God's justice and punishment with regard to sin. And again, we talk about the fact there is no way out of ourselves. The only way of escape is through Jesus Christ. He who was like us in every respect, according to Hebrews 2 here, verse 11. He, both he that sanctified and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He was like us. One with us. And yet, very different in terms of the fact that He was sinless. That He was holy. That He was perfect. He wasn't an angel. He was not a sinful man. He was like us, but without sin. And again, questions rise up. How could there be someone who would be like us in every respect and yet not be affected by the sin of Adam? The wonder, the wonder of God in giving a Savior. The problem with man is sin, unrighteousness. Jesus rose above that. The righteous Son of God, born of a virgin. God and man. And as a Savior who is like us, He understands the feeling of our infirmities. Verse 18 of Hebrews 2, For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to succor, that is, to comfort those that are tempted. He understands the struggles of this life. He understands the pressures, the temptations. And He alone is able to rescue us. Again, beloved, that's the witness that we bring. As we interact with others, and as we testify to them concerning the hope that lives in our hearts, we direct them to the one who understands. They say, but nobody understands. Nobody understands the circumstance in which I am in. There is someone who does. 
Jesus Christ. He was tempted. He experiences what it is. Experienced what it is to be lonely. To never marry. To never engage in sexual relations. He knows what it is to be one who was treated wrongly. Who was persecuted. He's our mediator. He's the one to whom we go. So that, beloved, not only do we personally hear the Gospel that there's hope, but that's the blessed hope that we bring to those with whom we have contact. That we talk and that we witness concerning this marvelous work of God's grace in our lives. And that we direct them to Jesus Christ. He meets the requirement. God formed Him for our salvation and glory. The Catechism brings us finally to Jesus. In question 18, who then is that mediator? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and wisdom. The Catechism stresses this deliverance again is all of grace. And it does that quoting from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. That's a striking quote, very apt. And beautiful. The source of all our life and the source of all our deliverance is in Christ. We have our existence because God created us. We have our spiritual existence in the salvation that God has worked. And that's the wonder that it is of God who of God is made unto us. He came from God. He didn't come of Himself. He didn't come from men. Now in this connection, it's important for us to understand clearly the difference between law and gospel as well as the relationship. The law, as we heard it read this morning, sets before us God's demand to love Him. To love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if we don't, God's curse is upon us and we must die. The law, as we noted previously, reveals our misery. It sets before us the fact that we can't do it. We can't love God perfectly. And as we listen to the law, then as we hear it, sorrow for sin wells up within us. We realize our sin. We are convicted of that sin. God works in us repentance of that sin. The gospel then comes as the revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And that gospel does not wound us. It doesn't kill us. It lifts us up. It gives us to know life. There's no contradiction between the law and the gospel. The law drives us to the gospel. The law serves the gospel. As those who know the gospel, we are moved to love the law, to delight in it, to desire to maintain and to keep it out of thankfulness to God. God proclaims the gospel through the law. Now, He does that in especially two different ways. And question 19 here sets that forth. Whence knowest thou this? From the holy gospel. And then notice later, which is represented by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. The gospel is represented by the sacrifices and by the 
ceremonies of the law. How is that? First of all, all of those were shadows that pointed to Christ. And so Christ was present in those ceremonies and in those sacrifices in that sense. He was the one to whom they were pointing. He was the one represented by them. They were all shadows pointing to Christ. But secondly, they themselves pointed to their own impurity, their own imperfection. They could not save. Those sacrifices could not save. Those ceremonies were powerless to save. And so that by pointing to Christ and by testifying of their own imperfection, they directed to the fulfillment that would be in Jesus Christ alone. The sacrifices, the laws, the ceremonies, pointing the saints to Christ and the wonder of salvation in Him alone. Now there are those who claim to be reformed, but they take the gospel and they make it law. They argue the law in the Old Testament was a condition unto salvation. If Israel believed and kept the law, they would be saved. No one could meet that obligation, so God had to change it in the New Testament. And now in the New Testament, God sets aside the law, and now He sets forth the gospel instead. Obey and believe. The idea then is that salvation is conditional upon obedience and upon believing. And so long as you fulfill the conditions of obedience and believing, then you can be saved. The gospel then is turned into something that man can't do. Man's not able to perform. The gospel's made a work now. And it's made that which is conditional upon man instead of on the cross alone. The grace that's inherent in the gospel is discarded. It's tossed away. Beloved, we insist believing is necessary for the joy of salvation. That believing is a gift from God. As God works that faith in the hearts of His children. The gospel is in no way dependent upon or conditional upon man. The gospel is based on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ alone. And God gives faith to His children so that they believe that gospel and they enjoy the wonder of salvation. The gospel is always accompanied by demands. Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For God's children, not only does God bring those commands, but God works in their hearts by His Spirit the fulfillment of them. He works in them the grace by which they obey and they respond to those demands. The way God works to bring us to know and to enjoy the gospel is working faith, working sorrow in our hearts so that it's all of grace. It's all a wonder of God's work. Else it's not, no, else it's not a gospel. Else it's not any good news. God takes us, He rescues us out of our woe, out of our misery, and He gives faith. And the wonder of that faith and the power of it is that we turn away from sin and we embrace God and we live in the enjoyment and wonder of that salvation. 
Now the next Lord's Day is going to get into that faith. How do we get that faith? How is it that man believes? And we delve into then the wonder of faith as a gift from God. But beloved, the gospel is always a promise. God didn't come to Adam and Eve with a conditional salvation. God came to Adam and Eve with a promise. I will put enmity. God didn't say, I'll put enmity if you do this and the other thing. God didn't say, you need to put enmity. God said, I will put enmity. God didn't offer enmity to them. He didn't say, I'll establish this enmity if you meet these obligations. No, God promised it. He said, I will put enmity. And that promise to put enmity is a promise to reestablish His love in their hearts. They who had embraced the devil, who are now living in friendship with the devil, God said, I am going to make it. So again, you hate the devil. And the only possibility of hatred toward the devil is that the love of God lives in their hearts. The devil hates God. And now the devil will hate them because of their union with Jehovah God. That's the wonder of the gospel. And the promise then of the gospel is always and only to the elect of God. God comes and says, I will send the seed of the woman. I will save you from your sins. And that particular promise to save all who believe in Jesus Christ is proclaimed then as a general command to all men to believe. The command comes to all, repent and believe. But the promise is particular. It's for those that believe. And what does God do? God works a wonder. As that command comes to all, God works in the hearts of His children. They repent. They believe. And as a result, they're given to know then the wonder of the gospel and the joy of their salvation. Jesus Christ is the mediator whom God gives as a gift for our salvation. He is identified here from that quote from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, as being of God made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's beautiful, beloved. This is what Jesus becomes for me. So that now I can say, this is who I am. I now am one who knows wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And it's nothing of myself. It's because of my union to Christ. Jesus Christ then is my complete, full Savior. There's nothing more that I need. We stood before the law. The law revealed that we were lacking. The law said, love God. We didn't. We couldn't. We were weighed on the scale of God's perfect law and were found lacking. Now we're told, Jesus Christ is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's made this to us. We who are a company of traitors, we who are sinners, we who are a band of rebels who chose to turn our backs on God, to pursue the way of the devil, to love Satan rather than God. Unto us, 
who are dead in trespasses and sins, God gives His Son as our Redeemer. He is our redemption. That is, He is our payment. He's the one through whom we are sanctified. We are holy. He is our holiness. He's our righteousness. The righteousness that I have is His. So that I am righteous in Him. I am holy in Him. In Him, my sins are covered. We're taught here what Jesus is to us. That's significant. We're not taught merely what Jesus did for us. Jesus did marvelous things for us. We're taught here what Jesus is to us. He is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The Spirit of God worked a wonder by which His Son was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And He came into human flesh to give us wisdom. We who were foolish, we who would pursue our own will, are given wisdom from on high in Jesus Christ. He earned it for us. He gives it to us so that now we're able to take His Word and we apply it to our lives. Rather than living in the way of our own lusts, we pursue now His will because of that wisdom that is ours. He earned it. He freely gives it to us. But even more, to lay hold of Him then by faith is to know and to receive that wisdom, that righteousness, that sanctification, and that redemption. Not as our own works, not as our own qualities, but Christ's in us. The work of God with respect to salvation is set before us in terms of wisdom. Who in all the earth would ever have determined this would be the way of salvation and deliverance? That after man rejected God, God would pursue him. That God would come to him when man could not and would not come to God. And that God would send His own Son into human flesh in order to become our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. That's a marvel of marvels. Such is the unspeakable wisdom of God beyond our comprehension. This is the gospel, beloved, of comfort. This is the only way of salvation. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's the next verse in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31. Christ has become this. And what's our response? We glory in the Lord. And as such then, we're a witness here on earth concerning this wonder and this deliverance. And so what does that mean, beloved, for you and for me, very practically? In Jesus Christ, we find the fullness of our salvation. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. To be righteous means to be right with God. As if we had never committed any sin, never done anything that strayed from God's perfect counsel and will. We're dead in sin by nature. We're deserving of wrath and death. And yet, Jesus gives us to know 
that in him we are righteous. God looks upon us as those who are justified in Christ. And he looks upon us just as if we had never committed any sin and never will. The wonder In Christ, we have that righteousness which enables us then to live new and holy lives. We now walk in holiness. We now walk in a manner that reflects the glory and the honor of God. We love His will. We pursue His commandments as those who delight in holiness. Redemption, that's the free purchase of those who are in bondage. Christ paid that price. And He gives us faith. And we are free. And as those who are free, this is our confession. Thanks be to God. Now, beloved, how do we know this? How do we know this is true? You say, this is too good to be true. How can we know this? And that's the revelation that the catechism here speaks of. The gospel was revealed progressively throughout history. Even before there was a Bible yet, in paradise, after the fall, there was the gospel. The gospel was present, we would say, in all of its fullness. The promise of Jesus Christ and salvation in Him alone. It was present there in that word that God spoke to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. Speaking and addressing His words to the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Again, the promise of enmity was the promise of God's love being restored in the hearts of Adam and Eve. Later, Noah, the preacher of righteousness, preached the doctrine of grace. He preached the righteousness of God in the midst of an ungodly world. People were giving themselves over to sin. Noah preached. The seed of the serpent was crushed. And the seed of the woman was preserved in the ark by a wonder of God's grace. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob received the promises even in a brighter light as God progressively made known to them the wonder of salvation in Jesus Christ. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees in order to make of him a great nation. And God gave Abraham the promise that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How could that ever be realized? Abraham could not fathom the wonder of that promise. He looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker was God. And yet, what do we read in Hebrews 11 concerning the patriarchs? They had the promise. And even though they didn't have it yet in all of its fullness, they understood it. They were able to see by faith the fulfillment of it in Christ. And they then lived their lives and died by faith in Christ as the fulfillment of that glorious gospel. That promise of the gospel was, as we noted, represented, as the catechism says, in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4 establish that. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, 
can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. The law, a shadow, a picture of the things that were to come, and pointing to its own inadequacy. It could not save. The prophets testified of the reality of the promise. The prophets increasingly proclaimed the wonder of it. And as we look through the prophets, we see that development concerning specifically Christ. Talking about how He would come to be born of a virgin. Talking about where He would be born in Bethlehem. Talking about the nature of His work. Revealing all of the various aspects of the glory and the wonder of that promise. Until the coming of Jesus Christ was laid out in all of its beauty and wonder. The direct word of prophecy became more distinct as their words were fulfilled. And this is why we believe that the Bible is true. Because the words that are spoke therein came to pass. This isn't just the words of men. This obviously is God's word. As God spoke promises and then God brought them to pass. And finally, that promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As the shadows became more and more dim, the promise became more and more brilliant, more distinct. The light of the gospel, shining in light of the darkness of sin and the grief that was present among the church of that day. God testifying of the fulfillment of the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Mediator. Christ, the revelation of the promise in all of its glory and in all of its wonder. And Christ preached that gospel. He taught it while He was on earth. He didn't direct people to freedom from Rome. He didn't direct people merely to solutions for their social issues. He testified of the wonder of salvation from sin. So Christ is the theme that unites the whole of the Old and New Testament. Christ is the theme that runs through all of the books of the Bible. Teaching of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, runs as a thread through the whole of Scripture. We hold the Bible in high regard and we show it by reading it, by studying it, and standing in awe of that message. And what's the fruit of that again? It moves us to testify to those around us concerning that glorious hope. That this glorious promise and this gospel is the only hope for men and women. Canons 2, verse Article 5 states, The promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, together with a command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations. This is the message that the church brings. This is the message that we proclaim from the pulpit. This is the powerful message that our lives reflect. 
Christ continues to speak through the preaching. And Christ continues to bring that gospel to us in our need. Laden with sin. Burdened with temptation. Having done battle throughout the course of the week. We come into the house of God. And what's our desire? We need to hear of the way of escape. We need to know that there is a purpose and a reason for our existence here below. We need to know and believe that there is hope. And that hope is found in Christ and the wonder of the gospel. Beloved, why do we come to church? We come to church in order to praise and to exalt God. We come to hear the gospel of salvation. And we're not offended by that gospel. We might ask, why would people be offended by the gospel? And the answer is set forth in the scriptures. They don't want a gospel that's all of grace. They don't want a gospel that gives all the glory to God. They want a gospel that involves man, man's work, something I can do so that I can take the credit for it in part. They want a gospel that addresses otherwise social issues. They want a gospel that will eliminate war, eliminate all the troubles and all the suffering in the world. They want a Savior who's going to take away poverty, a Savior who's going to take away sickness. They don't want a Savior who died for the sake of sin. Beloved, the gospel that we preach is the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the only good news that there is. He didn't come to eliminate suffering. And we know that well. We experience pain and agony and suffering. He didn't come to take His people all out of this world immediately. And again, sometimes we pray for that. Why, Lord? Why do I yet have to remain here on earth? Bring me to glory. And we long for the deliverance that is to come. He came to save us from our sin. That's your and my greatest misery. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. As long as we live, we look to Christ. We know the deliverance that is ours in Him. There's going to be shame. There's going to be guilt as long as we live. We look to Christ. And we know in Him that deliverance. In Him and in Him alone there is grace and there is salvation. We the people of God are not offended by the gospel. We love that gospel. We rejoice in it. We delight in it. And we come to church to hear the good news of salvation. We don't come to church primarily to learn and increase our knowledge. That's a benefit, but that's not primary. We come to church because we desire to give glory and praise to God. And what is it that praises God more than anything else? To hear the wonder of our salvation. To hear the marvelous works that He's done for us so that the whole of our lives are directed toward Him and praise to Him and thankfulness to Him. We don't come to church because we want to hear how a man speaks. There may be times when we don't really like how a man may speak. What he says may step on our toes at times. It may be that we find issues with his delivery. It doesn't matter who the man is. We don't come for men. We come to hear the gospel. The gospel that gives life. The gospel that gives hope. 
The gospel that revives us after a hard week in the midst of this world. We come to hear that gospel that gives life. That speaks to the heart. That gospel of forgiveness that assures us that our sins are forgiven. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That God will not judge me for my failures as a husband, my failure as a wife, my failure as a mother, as a father, as an employee, as a child. I repent and I trust God's forgiveness. And I believe my punishment fell on Christ. He bore it all. And though I need to deal with the consequences, there is for me no condemnation. I need to hear the gospel. And I need to hear the victory that is mine in Christ. The devil's beating me down. The devil is trying to get me to walk in the ways of sin all week long. I need to hear the comfort, the hope, the strength that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And I come then, and He heals me. He comforts me. He encourages me. He binds my wounds. He assures me of forgiveness. And He gives me to know your salvation is all of me. It's nothing of yourself. And He works in us then an unspeakable joy, a thankfulness that will continue now to all eternity. Beloved, this is the gospel that we listen to as believers. It's hard work to sit in the pew. It's hard work to listen. But we come to hear Christ. With the Greeks of old, we say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And we not only hear, we respond by faith. We repent. We believe that God sent His own Son as my Savior and my Lord. We believe that my salvation is all of Him. I lay hold on the promise and I cling to Him as my Lord, the One who is made unto me wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great things Thou hast done for us. Our hearts thrill with the glorious salvation that Thou hast made known. And by faith we go forward, believing Though we are sinners, though our consciences accuse us, Thou hast given us to know a salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. And through Him, we shall not die, but we shall live to all eternity. Amen.